Welcome to NCAGT's podcast. Our mission is to dismantle the they'll be fine myth that often surrounds gifted learners. Our goal is to address the excellence gap faced by high ability students, including those from diverse backgrounds. Join us as we advocate for gifted and talented scholars to unlock their full potential. Please note the ideas and thoughts shared here are as diverse as our guests, not always reflecting the official NCAGT stance. Keep an open mind and let's explore a variety of perspectives together. Get ready to dive into a fascinating episode of our podcast featuring Joni Allison, the dynamic principal of Hendersonville Middle School. Joni's journey from teaching to leading is nothing short of inspiring, and we can't wait to uncover her secrets to success. Before assuming her role as principal in 2020, Joni served as an assistant principal at both middle and high school levels. Before her administrative adventures, Joni was the ultimate instructional coach, spreading wisdom and support within Henderson County Public Schools. Notably, Joni's teaching journey began with a profound focus on English language learners, spanning 11 years of impactful work in both Los Angeles and Henderson County. Join us as we delve into Joni's experiences and expertise, exploring her strategies for creating inclusive environments and supporting underrepresented populations in education. I'm Hannah Park. I work with NCAGT, specifically the podcast. I'm part of the public relations committee and your name was given to us, I believe, by Christy Doss. How do you know Christy? So Christy and I worked together at Rugby Middle School for a long time until she left the classroom. And while she was the AIG specialist, I was the ESL specialist during that time. And we actually shared an office space. So I have known Christy for a very long time. She is an inspiration to me and just an amazing human being. And so she reached out and said, Hey, this was awesome. Would you be interested? And I was like, I've not done a podcast. So let's do that. that will be a new experience for me. Yeah. She's amazing. Anytime I, I don't get to see her often maybe four times a year in person. Mm-hmm. But every time I do, she just has this energy about her. That's yeah. the, the contagious positivity and yeah. she's awesome. So as soon as she sent your name, I was like, absolutely. Let's get it booked. <laughs> yeah. So I was reading through your biography and it left me with a couple questions. You've been an assistant principal, a principal, instructional coach, and an ELL teacher, correct? That is correct. Yes. Of all of those jobs, which one do you feel like you maybe enjoyed the most or are there any pieces of your old roles that you really miss? Yes. So that is such a fabulous question. I have loved all of them. I will tell you that being an assistant principal at a high school and a middle school was by far the hardest, the most stressful in a lot of ways. The assistant principal job is, I think, one of the hardest jobs in education because you do all the work. And oftentimes you get the the toughest conversations and none of the glory, if that makes sense. Mm. So that would be one that I would not, I won't do again. But I love being a middle school principal. I love the fact that I am with kids all the time. I get to make decisions with other educators that I think really does have an impact. And I love the idea of elevating teacher leaders. And that is something I can do in my role as a principal. I loved being the instructional coach, though. That was probably the least stressful job I had. 
And it's the purest job when it comes to just your just instruction and curriculum like that. It is all about supporting teachers in their delivery and content knowledge. But I was an ESL teacher from 2002 until 2013. So I did that the longest job, different places. And advocating for kids that sometimes don't have advocates in the building is a lot of responsibility and very fulfilling. Well, I can only imagine how you've seen, I would hope you've seen a lot of transformation in the support that ELL students receive since 2002. Fingers crossed. Yes. 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 I, I remember my first year in 2002 as an ESL teacher, they had me at four different schools because they, there weren't enough populations. So they had, I, it was a crazy schedule and I had a brand new to the country fourth grader. And I remember him sitting in the back of the classroom coloring. And I was like, that's not what he's supposed to be doing. And it was a veteran teacher who was close to retirement, had never had a non-English speaker. And she was just at a loss. You know, it was, you know, we're, we're studying butterflies. So he's going to color a butterfly. And I was like, let's add some labels to that. Let's add some, you know, let's add parts of the body, parts of, you know, let's, so it was just kind of, yes. And now um, we have newcomers in our building now and their experience is light and day. Night and day, I guess. Yeah. I was in Union County Public Schools just outside of the Charlotte area um, for about eight years. And during my time, I spent about five of those years in third grade. Mm -hmm. And anytime we had new students um, from outside of the country that, you know, were ELL, they were placed into my classroom because I just had such a big heart for just imagining all that they go through walking Uh through the door, let alone the language barrier, but just the Uh culture shock and some really sad stories over the years, but then also some really beautiful ones to see them blossom. And just how you were saying, let's add some labels to the butterfly. Just the smallest things can make the biggest difference and have a really big impact. And it honestly doesn't take that much of your, you know, your time once you establish relationships and things. And I also saw in your biography that you lived in Los Angeles. (laughs) How did did you get from there to here? (laughs) So I am from, I, I grew up in, in Western North Carolina. We, my family moved to Western North Carolina when I was in the fourth grade. So I, from fourth grade, went down to Chapel Hill for college. So I am, and I'm back in Western North Carolina. So that's what I have always called home for the most part of my life. But I do have, I have someone that was, my husband is, a, is an actor by training. And so we were in Los Angeles. He was in a, he was in a, a major motion picture. And so we were out there for a couple of years while he was exploring that. And it was, I think it was almost like getting another master's degree in English language support because I was at a middle school that had over 600 English learners in it. And it was a very different type of English learner than what I deal with here in Western North Carolina. Some of them were what we called lifers, like they had been born and bred in Los Angeles, but were still not literate in their second language enough to qualify out of being identified as a limited English learner or LEP. Those labels change all the time, but um, they didn't have the literacy to not be identified as an English learner still. And so, yeah, I was out there for three years. I was in middle school that had so many kids that we would teach four months and then two months, the kids would go home and then another group would come in. We had an 
ESL department (laughs) because we had so many English learners and it was all the way from newcomers to kids that are right there and just need a little bit more literacy to no longer be, have that label. Wow. That's such great exposure for you to go and get that experience, but then be able to come back here and share that. Yeah. Um, And different cultures that we, like I've never had an Armenian in Western North Carolina where I had a a significant Armenian population in Los Angeles, just some different, yes, different cultures, different needs because of what the students have experienced, different traumas that they've experienced that they bring into the classroom, either personal or historical. And that's, I I was going to ask you that too. A lot of times when we think of ELL, we think Spanish and that's just not the case, obviously. No, Um, no. So what, I guess, what all have you been exposed to? What languages and? So we have over 40 languages represented just in Henderson County, North Carolina. Yes. Wow. Yes. So people think it's a small, we are a relatively small district. We're the second largest in Western North Carolina, but we're a relatively small district compared to a lot of others in the state. And we have over 40 languages. In my time as an ESL teacher, at rugby middle school, I had Micronesian students, Cambodian students, both born abroad and U.S. born Cambodian students. I had a French speaker. I had a Polish speaker. And then, of course, the majority is Spanish speaking, but I had Spanish speakers from all over the world. Like I currently have Spanish speakers in my building who are actually from Spain. And then we've got obviously Spanish speakers from Mexico, from El Salvador, from Colombia, from Argentina, which are all very different cultures and also even different language at time. And then we have a significant Ukrainian population in Western North Carolina as well. Well, I think a good place to start at the beginning of this would maybe be to define some of those key terms, just in case Mm -hmm. people aren't familiar. Yeah. So can you give a brief explanation of what ELL stands for, and I guess its significance in the context of education? Yeah, we start with one, um, just to throw another acronym out there is NOM. So when kids come in to enroll, they have to fill out this English language survey to see if they are a national origin minority student, if they're coming from a different country, or if they have a different language spoken at home. So we identify first, is English your first language? Um, Is it the language used primarily at home? And then from there, we screen students to determine if they're just multilingual students, which is the ML tag, or if they're English language learners, meaning that we still need to support that English language development. And when we talk about English language development, we are talking about academic English. A lot of times students who may be U.S. born but grew up in homes with other languages being spoken might be fluent in their conversational language and may need support in their academic speaking, listening, reading, or writing. I don't know if I've ever heard. There there are so many acronyms (laughs) in the world of education, and I don't know if I've ever heard of, you said NOM, N-O-M? N-O-M-S, yes. N-O-M. I had Um, never heard of that. Yeah. So that, and that, I think we like to use the term, I I love that we use the term multilingual now. I I love that. And I love that we use the term English language learner and not English as a second language anymore, because that English as a second language was, um, is is an incorrect identification because they may be English learners, but they're fluent in two, three, four other languages. We've had students, I remember an unaccompanied youth I had at rugby was Spanish was her second language because her first language was an, indi- an indigenous language. It was a native, it was an Indian language, I think is what we would probably call it. But she spoke a language 
that was an indigenous language first, then learned to speak Spanish. And now we are trying to teach her English. Yeah. Oh my goodness. And, and I know that a lot of people who aren't familiar live in the world of education. They often wonder how can someone teach a child if they don't speak their language? How do you say, what do you say to yeah. that? <laughs> yeah. First of all, what you talked about, the cultural expectations is the first priority. So if you've got someone that's brand new to U.S. schools, the first thing you want to do is you want to make them feel safe and you want to take care of their basic needs, right? Do they know how to go to the bathroom, use the bathroom? Do, you know, do they know how to use the, the facilities that are actually in a school bathroom? Do they know how to get lunch? Do they know how to get home? Those are, that's what we start with. And then once we make sure that they feel safe and they are connected in a way that they know how to get to school and get home from school, and we start talking about content, vocabulary is key. Using anytime you can use L1, use their first language is great, but pictures and gestures are huge. You know what I mean? You can take a, like we had a, a, a session the other day with our ESL director for, for some of our teachers that have newcomers. And we put up a high school biology text in front of them and said, and, and then she taught us how to do this high school biology in Spanish. And some of us have some fluency, but when she taught it to us, she went through and showed us how she can, how you can simplify the text, how you can simplify the language that you're using, um, you know, using Simplified sentence structure, repeating yourself, using gestures, labels, and then pictures, 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 pictures. Yeah. Oh, I remember an ELL coach came in and talked to me when I had several children in my class. And she just, I remember, I'll never forget. She said, make sure that, I forget how she worded it, but it's basically saying something louder isn't going to help them understand it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I know. <laughs> and yeah. I think that it's almost, you almost naturally do that. I, yes. I don't know, but yes, I was like, do. and she said that and I was like, oh, that kind of hurt, but I needed to hear that because she was so right. Yeah. Louder or slower or trying to say an English word with a Spanish accent. None of those help it to make it comprehensible <laughs> for students. Um, so like a lot of time, I mean, it's, it's a different world with AI tools and Google translate tools. I mean, we yes. had a, as you know, we had an incident on campus the other day where I had to take a statement from a, a newcomer. And so I was like, just write it in Spanish. Just, I basically used Google translate to ask what I needed him to write about. He wrote it all out in Spanish. And then I used my Google lens to translate it. And I was like, yep, that's exactly what I heard from everybody else. Thank you. And then we have um, a program that our district pays for called Linguistica, which is a beautiful resource. So I can call Linguistica and say, hey, I need a Spanish interpreter. They'll put me on the phone with a Spanish interpreter. The, the interpreter will make the phone call to the parents and it is on-demand Spanish interpretations. It's so easy and so amazing and just so welcoming to our Spanish-speaking families. That is absolutely beautiful. Do they, are they able to do that? Because I remember I taught kindergarten and just sending home, you know, you're, we're having a Valentine's day party and I wanted to send home information. Is yeah. there something set up for written communications that teachers can send like quick notes in and get a fast return? 
So my district pays for, for translation services for those school-wide bigger communications, but quick translations like that, I will be honest with you, AI, ChatGPT does a very good job for some of those easy, quick translations. And we are unique in my school that we're a dual language school. So we have a lot of Spanish speaking staff on our staff. And so they'll be like, yeah, that, that works. Or we'll try it and give it to a, a, someone who's biliterate and say, would you read this and see if this makes sense? So that's using some of our our talents. And to me, we're talking about gifted and talent. That is a gift that our students that have literacy in multiple languages that, that we can capitalize on. We had a teach, most of the teacher assistants in our, in the building that I worked in were, could speak Spanish and, but I just yeah. felt so bad for them because they all the time, everyone in the school was sent, can you look at this agenda note? Can mm. you, and they're just being pulled in all this, these different directions, but they have their own job to do. We pay, we compensate our staff that do that. And again, that is something That's that our EL director has worked with the Dogwood Trust to have grant funding that if we are asking them to do additional job responsibilities like translation and interpretation, they can bill for that. Oh, I love that. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. That is awesome. And you spoke about AIG, gifted Mm -hmm. education. What does that look like when children do come in? How are they identified? What's that process look like? And how is it different than the approach? I think a lot of times it starts with educating your staff to look for giftedness in unique ways. So I remember as an ESL teacher, I remember having some students that were coming in and I was working with them. And in math, a lot of times was where I would see it. I was like, oh, this kid is getting this faster than even the English speaking only peers. And so that's when I would partner with the AIG specialist and say, okay, I am seeing some strength in the content area. And so we would use a different screener for them. And I, I know there are some, like one was the Naglieri, which is shapes-based. And so it, it takes some of the language out. And so you can see if there's, if there is that giftedness on, a, on an assessment that is not text or word heavy. And then I think another one, I, I remember my AIG specialist that I was working with at, at the time said that the Naglieri is the closest to being bias-free. That was her term. That was her word for it. But then another one she has used one time was called the Satoni because it has no time limit. And so you take away that fact that a kid who is navigating content in a second language, you have to allow for additional wait time because they're going to process whatever's happening. They may need to put it back into another language, process it in a couple of different languages before they can produce, before the output is ready. And so taking a time limit off of one of those screeners was sometimes necessary. And, and we had a kid who was Cambodia born, came into the school there. And yeah, we noticed very quickly that his math ability was significantly better and we got him identified. That's awesome. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, What other strategies have you seen used or any success stories or? I think too, I think we also, to me, gifted and talented, a lot of times that label opens more doors for students. And so if I can't get the label, what other ways can I open doors and opportunities for students? And so we have in the past have done like some STEM camps where we're like, okay, these students are showing some proficiency, don't necessarily have the traditional label, but let's make sure they get these opportunities that other English speaking or English only speaking students would have. 
and they were billed, they were set up for targeting for some of those diverse learners that were not traditionally identified. I think something else that we do in this building is without being labeled gifted or talented, we can still give them opportunities to be in some of our honor sessions. And so when we're looking at scheduling, I ask my teachers to say, okay, I need you to be thinking about who you want to recommend for honors, but I need that list to include the top 10% of each of our minority students. Because if they're the top 10% of their minority group, then they are showing some proficiency that we need to capitalize on. And it needs to be 10%. It doesn't need to just be one. And I think that's a cautionary tale I learned as an ESL teacher. I remember having a student who was not an English learner. He was just a multilingual student, um, but he was, he was brilliant. He was a brilliant writer and he was, he was just so, and, and, and he just, and so I was like, we've got to get you into some honors classes. So we got him into honors classes in middle school. And then when I, I transitioned and had to be serving both the middle and the high school, I got over to the high school and I was like, buddy, why are you not still in these honors classes? And I remember him saying to me, I was the only one, like I was the only one in my classroom that looked like me and that spoke like me. And it just, it was lonely. And so when we try to create opportunities for minority students, we think about clusters. Mm -hmm. They need to have a support group that we can put in that space so that they, if they need to use L1 to process something, they have a, a language resource in the classroom with them. I love that because, and I think it's important to encourage them and provide opportunities for them to continue to practice their mm-hmm. L1. Yes. I've never called it yes. L1 before, but L1. <laughs> their yeah. first language. Their yeah. first language. Yeah, yeah. I love that yeah. though. <laughs> That's amazing. When you had mentioned you depend on your teachers to help identify mm-hmm. these mm-hmm. students, I feel like in a lot of undergrad education within our state, there's not a lot of opportunities for college students to learn about gifted education. It's mm-hmm. not really a requirement. Is there mm-hmm. anything that you do throughout the year to help keep your teachers up to date or almost any type of professional development that you offer on gifted identification or? Um, I have not had to do that in my current role because I have had such amazing AIG specialists that I have worked with. So Um, my, my current AIG specialist in this building is phenomenal. The AIG specialists I worked with at a previous middle school in this County were both phenomenal. So they were advocating for that and they use a lot of times they would provide professional development through our beginning teacher program. And so our beginning teachers would get some professional development on different types of learners. So it would be like, Yes, we're going to talk about EC, but we're also going to talk about 504. We're going to talk about EL and we're going to talk about AIG. And so beginning teachers in their first three years as they're onboarding into our county would get some professional development on what do these learners need? I think one that is often really helpful for for teachers to know about are those underperforming identified students, the ones that don't play school well. That is some professional development that I love seeing when we do beginning teacher trainings. Yeah, like the common misconceptions and yeah, absolutely. What advice would you give to educators or even administrators that are looking to create more of an inclusive and supportive environment 
for the underrepresented students, particularly um, those language differences? Yeah, I love the idea of removing barriers, right? We are not in the build, building or the business of building barriers. That should not be why we're in public education. We believe in an equal opportunity for all. And so if that's what we believe, then we need to be proactive in removing barriers. And so um, being um, just being creative in your thinking about placement and creative in your thinking about opportunities. My biggest advice is go in and walk into your AIG classrooms, walk into your honors classrooms. Do they mirror the rest of your school? If you, they don't, then you need to do some digging as to why not. And that's really where we started in the building I'm in now. We were doing walkthroughs and I was like, our honors classes didn't match the rest of our building. And so we were leaving um, opportunities for growth on the table with some of our minority students. And so that's why we looked at how can we use other sections of honors to, to nurture those students. Um, and so my biggest advice is walk around with the lens, like put that lens on of you should, proportionality is a thing, right? You should have a proportion of each of your subgroups that are gifted. And so are you seeing that in those spaces that you're providing for them? Well, and what exactly do you mean when you say your honors classes didn't match the rest of your building? So we have like, we have honors classes that are AIG specialists taught. And those typically were middle-class white classrooms. And so we have in this building, 60% of our students are middle-class white. But then 20 to 25% of them are Latino or Hispanic. And then anywhere from 10 to 15% are African-American or multi-race. And so my question that we started asking in our school improvement process was, what are we doing for those students that are the, the 20 and the 10 and the 15%? And um, if, if AIG is filling up because they're being identified in elementary school, then what other sections can we open up so that we can have some more honor sections that we can fill in without that AIG label. But I can tell you that another principal, another middle school principal and I just had this conversation last month that we are, we need to have a wider conversation about how we identify at the elementary level, because if we're identifying at the elementary level and we're filling up our AIG sections with a particular demographic of kid, then that's a district problem. Well, and do you feel like the students that you get to walk through your middle school door, do you think they've been properly diagnosed or placed in the AIG? Or do you feel like you have a good number and you're like, oh, they don't belong in there and they filter out? <laughs> so occasionally we have some, I will say for the most part though, we do, the ones that are in that, those sections um, do belong. And so we're getting to the point now where one section of AIG is not enough. And a, and a grade level or a content. And so we as a school are having to have some conversations about our program model so that we can off, like spread that, that opportunity a little bit further. Um, but we also have had our AIG specialists do some training on differentiation for those kids that may be sitting in a different section, but do need to be challenged. And so she's done some professional development on differentiating and how do we extend the content and to make sure we understand that just free time and more work is not differentiating and it's not extending the content. DFEQ is proud to partner with NCAGT for the 49th Annual Gifted Education Conference, Building the Future Together. Are you an educator seeking to leverage authentic learning insights to better meet the needs of your students? Looking to target your teaching practices, but unsure where to start or how to identify opportunities across learners? 
DiffyQ wants to support your journey. Sign up for free access at DiffyQmetrics.com. See you in Greensboro, March 14th through 15th. This is great. This is so interesting. <laughs> and I, I don't know. I guess I just, I live in the world of elementary ed and I've just shipped so many of my babies off to the middle school world. I'm like, it's so yeah. rough there, but it just is so nice to see and hear that there's just these awesome programs and I don't know that it's, I don't know. It's just really good to hear. And I will add those of us that are in sometimes the forgotten middle, like middle school is so tough. It is such a tough <laughs> three years. Um, they, they go like, like if you think about what a child goes through from the, the age of one to the age of three and how they turn into like, they go from babies to little toddlers and little humans, the development from sixth grade to eighth grade is just as significant. Like they come in as children and they leave as like teenagers. And I'm not sure what's going on with my background right You've now, got but fireworks going <laughs> off. <laughs> not sure how that's happening. But anyway, I will just say that because that development is so significant, there is a lot of angst and turmoil that does happen. But one of the things that is so important about middle school is to make sure we're getting them ready for the next level because their credits may not count in middle school. Some of them do. We do have opportunities to like to you know, my kids can walk out of here from anywhere from three to four high school credits based on if they're in the dual language program or not. Um, but we need to make sure that they, if they're going to be having the opportunity to take honors in high school, then we need to make sure that we're getting them ready with the rigorous honors prep type curriculum and instruction in middle school. We need to make sure that they've got that foundation so that they can lay a high school honors class on top of it and be successful. So we really see that as our main thing is to make sure when kids walk in our building, they leave us ready to be successful for high school. And that's a big transition. Another big transition mm -hmm. too. Yep. Yep. I have a, a nine month old right now. And so when you say they grow so much from one to three, I'm, I feel like she's already grown so much from yeah. six to nine months. And I'm just like, oh my goodness. Like it's <laughs> yeah. going so fast. I know. Um, well, I definitely, I want to respect your time. I know that you've got a lot going on. Is there anything else that you I have one final question that I, we ask everybody mm -hmm. before I get to it? Is there anything else that you like want to share or? I, yeah, I definitely want to share the fact that I want to go back to this idea of opportunities, especially for our multilingual students. Um, you know, kids that are on what might be an honors track in middle school, like I said, may walk out of here with math one, English one, Spanish one, but our district also uses the credit by demonstrated mastery process, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, no, but uh -uh. so that process is if you've got mastery in a content, you can take an assessment and get a high school credit without sitting through a course. I love that. That's amazing. It's, it is amazing. And so last year was the first year that we communicated to our families. Like if you've got mastery in a language, we're going to give you the opportunity to demonstrate that mastery with an assessment. And then we're going to start honoring or giving you high school credit for that. So we had a huge number of kids. And again, we had students in this little building. I've only got 530 kids. We got um, students that got credit for German and um, Russian and Japanese and, and Spanish just by coming into the media center and sitting through a, a language exam. And so, so I've got these kids, these multilingual kids that are not only going to go into high school with credits because they might have taken a rigorous course here in middle school, 
but it honored their heritage language in a way that said your heritage language is so valuable. We're going to give you high school credit for it. And so now you have more credits available to take something else. So if that is a higher level language, or if that's to start taking community college credit classes or an AP classes, you have extra space in your schedule now because we've honored what you brought into our classrooms with a heritage language. That is amazing. That's so supportive. And I can't imagine how happy that those families were when they heard that. Yeah. And it just, it values it that that value goes beyond what happens in the school building. It, it it honors the culture that is existing at home as well. Yeah, absolutely. And and you would hope that they continue to go on because a lot of times it's not just enough to be proficient to speak it, but to be able to write mm-hmm. in a separate language can really benefit them later on in life. Yes, yes. So and does- and we have a great partnership with our community college that can help get the actual interpretation skills and training if you want to actually start monetizing that skill that you have. Wow. That's so exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Night and day from when when you first started as an ELL teacher, I'm sure. It is. It is. We are a multilingual society and now we are actually putting some, you know, we, we value high school credits and we value how we can monetize things. And so we are valuing that resource in our communities right now. That is beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that. That yeah, is awesome. Absolutely. The last thing I'm going to ask you is about the divide that the term giftedness can cause. Sometimes the term can lead to misconceptions and prevent students from being identified if they don't check the preconceived boxes. Mm -hmm. Do you agree that the term gifted is problematic? And if so, what would you rename it? Oh, that's such a tough, that's such a tough question. I do. I think all labels become problematic. Unfortunately, we need them to have a, to have conversation, but all labels can become problematic because stereotypes go with them. And if we're putting if we're applying that label consistently consistently to the same type of student, that's where we get in trouble with the label. I know we use intellectually gifted, and I love that idea of intellectually gifted in that because intellect, multiple intelligence, right? Intellect can have multiple forms. And so I feel like we're getting a little bit better because I've actually had my own middle school kids say in the building, neurodivergent. And so I feel like we're getting into this space that brains are not all working the same way. So while I would not use the word neurodivergent for a term, I do love that idea that is there a way that we could say our brain functions in a way that needs to be challenged. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to create a label. That's not my gift, but I do like the idea of we all have gifts. So let's be a little more specific about the gift that it's, there's something intellectually and something going on in the brain that, that needs not just should or want, but like it needs to be challenged in a way and it needs to be honored and grown. I love that. Uh, that makes me excited to hear that you've got kids understanding but I actually on Monday I um, interviewed these two neuro neuropsychologists and they uh-huh. created this picture book it's called different oh. thinkers ADHD but it's a oh, really this. it's a really good book and it explains how their brain works 
just oh. like the actual science behind ADHD yeah. and the neurodivergency yeah. of it all. And I would love to see, and there might be one out there, a book like this for what it means to be gifted and how your brain yeah. is different. Yeah. Um, but I so appreciate you taking the time to to be here and I'll absolutely have to thank Christy for setting this up. You're so knowledgeable and so interesting. Um, thank you. Learned a lot. I love it. I, I, I love it's It's why I'm still, I've been in this business for over 20 years and why we're still in it is because it is amazing. The, the, the joy you get out of seeing a kid achieve more than they thought was possible. Now, how many yeah. more years do you have until retirement? Until you- uh, I probably have 11 because the time in California doesn't really count for my years of service. I did not buy back into North Carolina's retirement. So I've got a good 11 years left. I've been doing administration since 2016. I've been, this is my fourth year as a principal. I'm in a space that I absolutely adore. I just love the fact that I'm in a, the city of Hendersonville, which means I've got a hundred kids that walk <laughs> off my campus because they can. So I just, and I'm in a space where I've got a beautiful faculty that, that is passionate about loving each other and loving our kids. Um, and so I, I, I will, I've got a, definitely a few more years here because I love what I'm doing. And then we'll see what's next. We'll see what's next. I'd love to get back to making some bigger curriculum and instruction decisions. So that's, that'll probably be somewhere at the end goal. Yeah. How exciting. Well, I hope it continues to blossom for you. And I hope that you have a good rest of the school year coming up on the final push and exams. And I hope all of that goes well for you. Yes. Yes. Thank you. And I applaud you for for creating a space for these conversations so that, that folks can help to basically break down some of those myths that that may be around gifted and talented students. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for your time. And hopefully I'll be in touch soon and let you know when all of this will be out and you can send it to your people. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate it. (laughs) Absolutely. You too. Bye. Bye. And there you have it. We truly appreciate your time spent with us today. If you enjoyed this episode of They'll Be Fine, please consider sharing your thoughts. Leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Audible would mean the world to us, but we understand if it feels like a lot. Even a quick five-star rating or sharing this episode on your own social media can make a significant impact. Your support helps us reach more families and educators who are navigating and advocating for their gifted loved ones. We hope you'll join us on our next episode as we sit down with another amazing stakeholder in the gifted community. Until then, take care.